0: Welcome to Talking Physio, an Australian Physiotherapy Association podcast that aims to shed light on physiotherapy research and physical activity. In this episode of Talking Physio, physiotherapists Cameron Edwards, David Kelly and Jenny Setchell discuss the complexities and sensitivities of working with marginalised groups such as Aboriginals and Torres Strait Islander peoples, refugees and LGBTQI communities. The trio also addressed the importance of cultural awareness and safety, checking inherent biases, and ensuring the physio environment is welcoming. Before we dive in, this episode is proudly sponsored by Flexies, Australia's number one heat wrap. It's been clinically proven to be effective for back pain relief, lasting up to 15 hours. Flexies also remain the exclusive partners of the Physiotherapy Research Foundation, which work to support the profession by promoting, encouraging, and supporting research. Thank you very much, Flexies, for your help with this podcast. Now let's get into it. Hi everyone, uh, my name's Cameron Edwards.
1: Uh, we're talking about a really uh, special topic this evening and we've all agreed David, Jenny and I to begin with an acknowledgement of country Um, especially as we talk about these topics I think it's very important to highlight and pay our respects so that's for the Ghana people here in Adelaide and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and also emerging and also extend that respect to any Indigenous listeners that are listening to this podcast as well. I had a question for David. Uh, Yesterday, you mentioned the three R's when dealing with uh, your patients or clients who are refugees or sufferers of trauma. Just wondering if you could go over them again briefly and just explain to the listeners how you would succinctly deal with those type of populations. Yeah,
2: thanks for the question, Cam. I guess what I was trying to do was uh, to frame a way that people could take away something and in preparing my talk and working through it, most people know about reading, writing, arithmetic, and, and it's something that you know people s- stick in their mind. And uh, I thought about what we need to do when we're working with refugees and survivors of torture and trauma. We need to research uh, when we're dealing with these clients, uh, and that's our first point. The second point is we need to reflect. So often you as you work through material, You're not sure how it applies. And and as you reflect, you you get insights. And then the final R was to actually respect. And that's something that I think comes for most physios pretty automatically. But also, as you get more insight into someone's background, I think it, it, it comes naturally.
3: I'll perhaps build on that. So what I was talking about yesterday was LGBTIQ plus population, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex and queer and other related identities and physiotherapy, so how um, people from those identities experience physiotherapy practice. And one of the things that I mentioned, so with the term reflect that you were just talking about, is that reflexivity is really important and I think it takes another step on reflection. So reflection is just kind of a surface theoretically anyway it's just a surface view of what you do so this is what I did and this is what I can do better but reflexivity actually goes to a next level of saying what are my underlying assumptions the things that are sort of hidden in my thinking that can sometimes make me unintentionally not so respectful across different communities so I think it's nice to add that other layer as well of I might reflect on this superficial level with my existing assumptions so if I can work to challenge my assumptions by, for example, spending more time working with refugees or attending some films about people who've experienced being refugee in their background or um, uh, attending an uh, Indigenous art exhibition like the fantastic yeah. one that's on here at the moment, I think this can really challenge our assumptions and go that next step towards sort of reflexivity and um, questioning our assumptions and, and changing them. Yeah,
2: that's a that's a great point. And, and I think that um, when you're working with different groups that we're talking about, they teach you and it's a challenge because sometimes things come up and uh, I guess that's where my research idea came in is um, you have to go away and and look into the background of someone and and what they might have been through and often there's that kind of smoothing off the rough edges as you work with someone and you realise, I think I'm not coming at this perhaps from the right angle or I didn't understand the experience that they've been through. And that's why I'd like to throw a question to you, Cam. has been your experience going through physio and working through the health system? What sort of challenges have you come across?
1: It's hard to talk about the challenges without making anyone feel a bit guilty um, about some things that I've experienced um, or that I've seen. I'd just like to quickly say I love what I loved about the forum yesterday and also communicating with you guys in this topic is that kind of intersection between that umbrella of our topics of disadvantaged populations and that that reflexivity really works across all of these populations and as you said you know I think as physios we are relatively good with our communication but in these populations especially I think they can go under the radar because in our multicultural population you don't necessarily assume The person you're treating is a refugee unless they say it or you don't necessarily understand if they identify as lgbtq plus unless they say it or as i mentioned yesterday what is an indigenous australian how do you know i am i'm white like how do you know that someone is indigenous unless they tell you or unless you ask and so i think The next step in addressing these populations and addressing the gaps in health inequalities is to actually make that more conscious step towards closing the gap instead of just potentially treating them as any other population with that assumption. Challenges that I've faced, um, racism, it's quite a big one. I had a very unfortunate experience as a student uh, with a supervisor who is quite racist and would make racist jokes. I did not want to return to that practice, but there's that kind of power imbalance. And I think that's relevant not only between the student and educator relationship, but also um, in a physio relationship. We walk into a, a patient's room or bring our client into a room and we have that authority. We have the power of knowledge and. Yeah, that power imbalance, I think we need to humble ourselves a little bit. A lot of these populations might not have the health literacy that we are perceived to have or do have. And I think sharing that power is really important because, yeah, this guy made me feel like nothing and like dirt. And I had to very subtly point out to him that I was Indigenous. I just said, oh, yeah, I went to Indigenous games with uni. Oh, you're Aboriginal yeah I am and the joke stopped but obviously the racism didn't necessarily so I think that's a really important thing I mean like if you're a racist maybe just don't be so overt about it <laughs> in our practices and be professional that's for sure but cultural awareness training I think is really it's done better in the public system than perhaps in the private because in private you're you're responsible for your business whereas in the public system what we have a couple of uh mandatory training requirements that are needed and lastly last thing i'll say on this sorry is that APRA is is bringing in a cultural safety component to their standards and i think as physios both in the education component of it as well as those who have been practicing for a while it's important to get on board with this because it'll be determining whether or not you're a physio or not in the future
3: that was great thank you and I'm so sorry you've experienced that it's awful yeah it was terrible yeah I think there's a couple of things I want to speak to I think the first one was that in our qualifications now for us to be um, physiotherapist there is components of cultural safety which is really nice change in the most recent New Zealand and Australian ones and that is driving some changes in our curriculum thank goodness and I think one of the things, I thought it was really great how you said, if you're racist, maybe don't put that out there, because I think we all have racist assumptions, actually. We were brought up in a society that is not perfect about race or about other cultures as well. So we all have assumptions based on these racist ideas that once we become aware of them, I think we can shift the way that we work with people. But it takes a lot of time to change those assumptions that are embedded, unfortunately, in our culture and guilt and shame is something I talk with the students a fair bit about because I get them to check their assumptions and consider um, privileges or um, disadvantages they might have had in their lives which is which is a really hard and challenging thing to do Mm -hmm. and it does bring up a lot of guilt and shame and that can be really uncomfortable to have in a teaching space so I talk with them about guilt and I said I asked the students is, is that something that's Helpful, And there's kind of some people nodding and some people shaking their heads. So we say that, yes, it can be really unhelpful when it paralyzes you, but it can be helpful in that it's an indicator that perhaps we need to change and act differently so that we don't feel so guilty. But that we can't undo, you know, the privilege that I get as a white person every day, I get benefits from that whether I want to or not, because society treats me different to um, the black person next to me. So, you know, I still have guilt and shame around that because that happens all the time. And So we can't get rid of guilt and shame, but we can certainly act on it in positive ways rather than rather than negative ways, I think.
2: Yeah, and it's so easy if you're in the majority to make the assumption that that's life for everyone. Um, and so it's only when you start to hear and experience a little bit through others' experiences, of what they've been through, that you start to realise it's a very upside-down world when you look from the perspective of someone else who's perhaps come from another culture, uh, if they're a refugee. Jenny, you said a very interesting thing yesterday when you were talking about, you know, if someone discloses that fine balance between uh, exploring that more but also not, not pushing the boundary too much...
3: Yeah, so I think, I was talking about LGBTIQ people, if they will disclose about their partner, if they're a woman, their partner being female, or if they, they mention that they're transgender to the physiotherapist, that's that's really amazing thing. That's quite scary for us to do as queer people. So that's a great moment when that happens. And it can be tricky to deal with. How do you manage that privilege of that, receiving that information? And there's a couple of ways that are more helpful (laughs) so my suggestion is don't just ignore it because it can be uncomfortable to talk about so don't ignore it do return to that topic but in a really safe and respectful way so if someone has mentioned their partner maybe you want to say so what does your partner do or something it may not be immediately but come back to it later or something like that and it, it just normalizes the situation and shows that that you can talk about that topic with them, which opens the ability to talk about their lives as relevant to their treatment and also um, builds trust. The thing not to do is to show over-interest. So it may be that a trans person has come out to you that they're a transgender man, or woman. It's not appropriate, unless it's appropriate specifically to their condition, to ask about what type of surgeries they've had just for your information, and that does happen a lot, and that's that's something that's experienced and, and is very traumatic for the trans population. So, yeah, so do return to it, but do it in a respectful way. Don't just ask questions for your own interest. And I imagine that's the same across our populations oh, because it that. could be that trauma's really of interest to you and you follow that, but that might not be what that person from a refugee background might not necessarily be um, helpful for them to relive that, I imagine.
2: No, that's right. And it can be very helpful to know if someone's been through difficult experiences, but you need to find a way to say that. So you might say to someone, knowing where they've come from perhaps, or the potential time and and knowing that there might have been um, challenges in, in that country at that time, perhaps one way is just to say, you know, I know that some people have had terrible experiences. There's no need to tell me if, if you have in detail, but, you know, is, is there any terrible experiences you might have been through? If they even flag that much, then you can, you know, alert yourself to the fact that maybe there, there needs to be some additional support. Um, you need to seek perhaps uh, the opportunity for them and discuss with them, you know, there are other people beyond a physiotherapist that might be able to help in in some of these difficult situations. You can kind of get enough information to know that other people need to come in without having to push for any detail. And most of the time, I'm very fortunate at Foundation House that it's in a context of people who are counsellor advocates or psychologists, and there are other people around but I was talking yesterday about how as a physio sometimes because we we have the privilege of touch and the, that creates an intimacy that sometimes um, clients will divulge things that no one else has ever heard of and you think that everyone else knows and, and you realise that they've actually told you something that is really special. So I think we have to be alert to odd stages, um, things just dropping. And as you say, not to push that too hard but to pick up on it and maybe come back to it a bit later and people will often share a bit more.
1: Yeah I was going to say again it intersects in all of these populations and I think something I didn't necessarily get to mention yesterday I I did present a stat about the stolen generation and uh, how in 2008 there was 26,900 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders who did say that or report that they had been removed from their natural family and that is you know well taught not well taught but it is taught in schools that there is this thing the stolen generation but I think a lot of people miss out on something that's a bit more subtle and it's a not formally coined term but it's a silent generation and it's a generation of people who you know were bred with whites to remove the uh, the melatonin gene um, that was a you know, a state and government initiative to basically remove Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander features and quite successful because it's not a dominant gene. But those people would not identify as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. And yeah, this coined term of more of a silent generation because you would miss out on access to education. I know someone who their sister was black, they were white, they got an education, their sister sat outside out the classroom and these things are quite common so again you are quite a privileged practitioner if someone opens up to you about their aboriginality especially because does that mean that now you're going to come and take my kids away does that mean now that you're going to investigate my relationship with my family and alert the police or you know all of those historical atrocities just come to mind and can you be proud about who you really are when when you don't know what's coming next so i think like you said there's there's kind of like an ignorant interest or that personal interest where it's not professional you don't need to know that information to treat the patient maybe with that If they defeat the generalization that you might have of that population like oh it's a white aboriginal maybe you can go and do some research afterwards and find out a little bit more for yourself and it's great that you have questions um, but they might not be appropriate in a professional context to actually ask those questions so i think it's really important also flag it don't ask people how much they are you know in terms of percentages a lot of people do say oh well i would ask you know my white friend that that's fine but historically like i said to bleed out the melatonin it was i presented a, a slide yesterday i didn't speak on it but um, there was a picture and it had three generations and you could see the original features disappear in each generation and that was the whole intent to halve quarter and eighth the gene so that it would leave so when you ask someone that again historically you're asking you know how far removed are you how how distant are you from your heritage and i think that that is a really tragic way to frame that question and it does become a bit difficult if you really do want to know but i don't see why you do have to know either so that again very privileged to have someone open up about that and it's mandatory in um, new south wales health that you ask at reception which is great because they're generally quite trained in how to ask but i can understand how it'd be difficult in a private context to identify that
3: yeah and i think thinking across those different contexts in which we practice as physiotherapy because there's a lot of different ones Mm -hmm. um i think sometimes it's hard when you perhaps you're seen as part of an institution when you work in a hospital or something, but. I think for people who've experienced disadvantage, often coming into our spaces across where we work as physiotherapists can be quite daunting, um, there can be a lack of feeling of safety for some of the reasons you've just mentioned, Cam, because there's historical atrocities done through healthcare, through our large institutions, through the institution of health so to speak, and physiotherapy is seen as part of that even if it wasn't physiotherapists that necessarily did these things. so. And the way that we create our spaces can be quite daunting for people as well. They're kind of clinical, they they might be posh-looking. You know, this welcomes in some people and, and not others as much. So I think that's something to keep in mind. Think about how you set up your space, both the physical space and the... I guess the emotional environment to create safety for, particularly for disadvantaged people. So there's lots of different ways in which this safety can be created. And I think we all spoke a little bit about that. Can
1: you talk about those, like you mentioned? You mentioned creating a space yesterday and just mentioned to the listeners what kind of strategies you had employed. Yeah,
3: so there's lots of different ways in which you can do that in, in terms of, I'll speak to the LGBTIQ context. You can display that you're not assuming that people are heterosexual by using non-gendered terms such as partner. That's so you're not assuming that they've got a partner of a particular gender by using um, or avoiding using pronouns so that you're not assuming that people are cis-normative, which means um, fitting into the binary categories of male and female. So those, as well as what I was saying before in terms of when people disclose to you, dealing with that um, disclosure appropriately... And respectfully. But you can also show allyship in a LGBTIQ context if you are an ally, a true ally. And when we did this survey of people who are LGBTIQ and their experiences of physiotherapy, they actually spoke against having a rainbow flag put up in the physio context. And this is because they only wanted it there if they were true allies there. So if people were actually going to be respectful for them because they didn't want to go in feeling safe and then have that trust breached. So that was a really interesting finding. So if you do feel like you have a strong, and and allyship's defined as a lifelong process of building relationships based on trust, consistency and accountability with marginalised individuals or groups of people, it's not self-defined. So if a person feels like they can be an ally or ready to be an ally, perhaps check with that marginalised group before um, showing your allyship so if you do feel ready to be an ally I think you can show um, in your clinic or workspace it might be an office if you're an educator or whatever Um, you can show the rainbow flag and the trans flag which is a blue pink and white flag you can also I think use indigenous iconography in different ways it might be indigenous flags or perhaps artwork to give an indication that you're a safe space that you're aware of indigeneity and correct me if I'm wrong on that and you can do things like undertaking allyship training for LGBTIQ, that's quite um, common in universities that that's provided. So you can gain more um, skills in allyship as well. The other things you can do in your space is have images of diverse people. My um, PhD was actually on weight stigma, so a lot of our advertising is very thin bodies, uh, sporty looking bodies, So, but also people of colour people that you know might have a partner that's not necessarily of a different gender to them these types of things so you can present this sort of open and welcomingness in your clinic space and you use some really nice images in your slides i think um cameron that were fairly diverse
2: yeah so um one of the resources I used was... Uh... Did I just call
3: you Cameron? I'm so sorry. That's right. I was going to start speaking. No.
2: <laughs> I'm privileged to be called Cameron. No! <laughs> Other way around. Sorry, David. Um, yeah, look, there's uh, some great resources that are, that are out there for allied health people working with refugees and, and also with survivors of, of trauma. And in each of the major cities in Australia, there are centres of excellence in working with refugees and torture survivors i guess it's really important to something i didn't say yesterday but not to think of people as victims that they're actually really strong and resilient amazingly inspirational people that have been through incredible difficulty and come through and and i think even survivors probably doesn't go to how significant people are that that they've been able to overcome in many cases not that you can take away what's been done, but they live with that every day, and they still move forward. Um, and I think that picks up Jenny. One of the comments you made that it's a it's a lifelong journey. And in working with, in my case, uh, some you know outstanding practitioners at Foundation House, they they will talk about sharing in the journey of someone, and that there are ebbs and flows, and times when it's difficult. There's times when no seems to be the answer, but underneath that, at times, you know, you can plant little seeds and then later they might be more open to something. So being patient and, and when you talked about space too, I think, uh, you know, I work a little bit in private practice and I, I think if you're trying to work with anyone that's got a more challenging situation to allow the time to have that opportunity for things to come up. So maybe in private practice, you might schedule someone towards the end of the day where you're not pressed for the next 15 or 20 minute or 30 minute or 40 minute appointment. You can actually devote time that people need. Uh, I think it's so important because in that space of time and being, you you know, you have the opportunity to really listen. And that's so important. And often that brings out things that you wouldn't have expected.
1: Absolutely. I think you just touched on something really important there that we tend to, Someone asked it in the questions yesterday about um, being time-bound and what do we do when someone might turn up late or whatnot. And I think we're very rigid in how we view our time. Obviously, it's attached to monetary value as well. But um, maybe, you know, if the initial consult time isn't long enough or you do pick up on those things, it is okay also to book someone in for a bit longer next time as well. And I I know I've had to do that um, where you might have the initial consult for an hour but you just unpack so much more in treating someone who might be from one of these disadvantaged populations and so maybe next time book another hour and then maybe they only need half an hour after that but at least you can say hey look we didn't get through everything we wanted to this time and there is so much more that you you know that you've opened up and I do appreciate that and then Maybe you can promise them a bit more time so that they do feel valued and you're like, next time, half an hour, we need to get through it really quick. And you're removing yourself from that empathetic component of our profession. Jenny, you did mention the Aboriginal artwork, and I think that's uh, definitely uh, something that you can do to make your space a little bit more um, inviting. For the listeners, APA does have a Reconciliation Action Plan artwork, and you can download that off the website. Um, and I would encourage you to, but if you want to get a little bit more creative and maybe engage in the community that you're in, perhaps identifying a local artist and commissioning a picture from them, that would also support the local community. I think that's an aw- uh, a really awesome way that you can actually grow your influence and your practice there in the community. The other thing is having pamphlets for Aboriginal health services in your local area just present on your table. and doesn't cost anything to... Put something on your table again. That can just show that you are at least attempting to connect to the community and the mob there, and I, I find that a really useful or inviting, um, I guess, model of care. I, and I think there's so much more we could do, but I think there is limitations sometimes in private practices or you know jumping hurdles in public health. But I just want to say the best setup I've ever seen. Um, and the most inviting setup I've ever seen was in Alice Springs, a place called Purple House. It's a dialysis unit and they have a, a bus that goes around to remote community. Oh, it was just brilliant. And in the waiting room, they have an artist table. And so you just sit there and doodle and, you know, you can draw and you get like a little square. And eventually it turns into an artwork with, you know, the more patients coming in while they're waiting for dialysis. And then they actually hang the artwork up that um, all the patients have come in and done. I mean, it is a targeted Aboriginal service, um, but, you know, th- those type of things, like our waiting rooms can be so boring and so whitewashed and walled and, uh, you know, very clinical spaces, but they could also be so much enjoy- more enjoyable, like where's the kids' toys and things like <laughs> that, you know?
2: I mean, that's a great point. And um, I'm thinking back to Foundation House when it first started was actually a house, Yeah. And so people would come in and they didn't come into this sterile clinical environment. It was actually like a home. It was welcoming. And they've carried that through now to other facilities, but they still try and make it homely Homely. and inviting. Homely. um, Warm uh, and receptive. Because sometimes people have been through trauma and difficult times as a result of what seems like sterile or even medical conditions. And so to. To change that up um, takes away that horrible
1: memory. Yeah, the threat. That's what Purple House was. It was a purple house (laughs) (laughs) that you turned up to. So um, I do think that is a really incredible initiative. And, I mean, private practices aren't generally huge hospital settings, so you can definitely make them more homely.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I want to pick up on what you were saying about spending extra time with people. I think that's a really fantastic suggestion and one that physiotherapists might consider doing even in situations where it's costing them money to do that if they're getting paid per patient Um, because when we think about closing the gap, balancing things up over time when people have been marginalised. The model of thinking now is not about equality, treating everyone the same. It's about equity, which means giving extra support to those who need it. That's great. So there's a fantastic opportunity for you to do that even if you're sacrificing some of your own money. There's an opportunity for you as a physiotherapist in that moment to promote some social justice.
2: And, and, And if you're willing to invest the time early and really hear people's story then I think it builds trust. It's actually time efficient because you're giving all of your attention to someone and they feel that they've truly been heard and then they're much more likely to follow as you work through together what should be the the treatment options they're much more likely to follow some suggestions you might have you know in terms of exercise or other things because you've put in the groundwork to build trust so extra time early is is really valuable and I think it saves a lot of time down the line
3: yeah, not only are they going to trust what you say, but they are more likely to speak up so that you'll hear from them too. And so that's going to be more efficient too because you'll hear from them about what will work for them and what won't. So you'll that's be right. able to you know, implement changes in their lives with them.
2: Yeah, and, and the more they can bring out suggestions maybe of what's worked for them or what they like and, and you often think, oh, I'd never have thought of that. That's a great idea.
1: This is a brilliant point on... A little bit of sacrifice now or, or the concept of sacrifice a lot of people think you give up something and you don't get anything in return but I think with physio in general number one if you, you're you in physio for money you, you chose the wrong career in general but also I think on a more general term you know if you're just throwing on some um, you know electrical modalities doing a bit of massage and really treating the patient as a wallet That's one way to build your practice. But if you implement evidence-based practice and they get better, I think that's a better form of advocacy for our profession and, and for business in general. And then you translate that into communication in these disadvantaged populations and yes again you might not be doing what you think is going to make you money but aboriginals talk <laughs> and 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 refugees talk and when quiz do yeah, we exactly. will
3: recommend yeah. this recommend? is a safe place for you to go we so do if that recommend. person
1: has spent a little bit more time with you you're building business when you build communication and you build relationships and i think that's such an important concept in physio, that that again, you think you're sacrificing a bit of your time, and yes, you are. You're spending a bit longer, a bit more emotional energy, and things like that. But you are actually building reputation and and, and generating talk in your community, which is positive towards your practice. Such an important concept, I think, yeah. for physios.
3: And definitely, I worked in um, the last private practice I worked in, which was for six years. Because of my friends and connections, we did have a queer increase in the queer population coming to our clinic, which was actually a big clinic with a number of physios. So it wasn't just me that increased in the queer population because I wasn't there all the time. So actually, you know, my colleagues said that they um, had more queer... Patients and that that has continued since I left years ago, actually. So it's known as a safe place for the LGBTIQ population, even though it's actually not on their advertising or anything like that. I should suggest they do that, though, because I think it is a safe space for them. Yeah, so How it incredible. definitely happens. How incredible
1: that it's, it's maintained that. And it, again, it's not down to one person. You don't need to be Aboriginal or a refugee or a queer person to to build your space uh, or to build your influence in these areas or, or to join the, you know, in solidarity for health. So I think, yeah, you, you can do it by yourselves in a practice, utilising some of these techniques that we've been talking about. Yeah,
3: um, and one of the things I forgot to say was yeah. that you can explicitly state on your clinic's advertising material that you welcome various types of people. So you could say that you welcome LGBTIQ, um, you know, First Nations people, people people from refugee backgrounds. You could say that if you do have that experience and expertise and that's a very good way to welcome people.
1: The talk on homelessness, um, one of those great things about the the clinic was that they do have walk-ins and that it does... And she was promoting some ideas about you know, and this could translate into the refugees as well, that sometimes people don't have enough money. And I think we have assumptions of why people aren't turning up to our clinics and why we're getting did not attends and things like that. I know at least in an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander context, maybe they don't have money to call you, or maybe they actually have a family emergency, which takes priority over their own health. And, um, you know, maybe the The distance is too far or there just hasn't been enough in place for that. So I think sometimes advertising, and again, you take a little bit of it out of your own pocket, um, but it reaps long-term rewards in the community. Maybe you offer the one to two free sessions a year and that might not seem like anything, but it's more than nothing. Yeah, and
2: most private practitioners are wanting to do something. And I think maybe just taking on one client and just saying, you know, just once a week I'm going to set aside at the end of the day one space and just starting there, and there are many people in the profession who've got resources and knowledge that are willing to help if you're finding that it's getting a little out of your depth. I think the other thing about having that extra time is to expect to be impacted and and you'll learn a lot of things and, and learn things about yourself. And to expect that, and, and it's it's good to have that extra time because you need to process that. And if you're seeing a lot of clients in this in this area with refugees, perhaps having someone to debrief with so that you can call and say, gee, you know, they, they brought up this and I'm really feeling awkward about it or, you know, this is pretty confronting. Because periodically people will share things that are pretty confronting, so...
3: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And something we don't necessarily have built into physiotherapy is that um, it's, it's common in psychology and social work where you've got someone that you can speak to about those aspects of your practice, not necessarily, so they sort of mentor you or support you on, um, it's, I think it's called clinical supervision in those contexts, on those non-technical aspects of your practice. So it might be, you know, I don't know how well I'm doing with the transgender population you know, and talking that through with someone who doesn't necessarily have to be an expert in transgender, but help you problem solve. You know, um, maybe you can do you know do some more research into this, or no, that sounds like you are doing really well, or whatever. So sometimes, um, particularly I think when you're working with marginalised groups, it can be really helpful to have someone to reflect. Uh, whether that's a formal or informal um, set, up, set up, that I think that's a great thing that I think we could introduce more in our professions, actually.
1: I'm pretty grateful, actually, in the hospital system. There is, well, at least it's encouraged. I I don't always take full advantage of it, but um, there is models in place for that clinical supervision, but I I do see it getting lost in, uh, or or can see the possibility of it getting lost in the private practices and aged care and things like that. But because we have that kind of hierarchy of, you know, that's the senior, that's the deputy, that's the... You had a department there's kind of a little bit more structure where you can say i can go to that person for this clinical area or for this supervision so you know i feel quite lucky to have that
3: that's great and i think that what i've heard read in the literature about it is that sometimes physios only expect to be able to go to people and discuss the technical aspects yeah. so that but you can also seek supervision about these um more psychosocial aspects of our work um, and being a physiotherapist.
1: Such a huge part of our work as well. There's, I really like the terms, you know, that kind of incidental psychologist or accidental psychologist because we're working with people and having interactions. And like you mentioned having that kind of level of intimacy where you're in you're in a little cubicle with one person one to one you know you're talking about those kind of deeper issues you're always going to have you know an emotional toll I remember one week at work (laughs) I think of about four times I nearly broke down listening to some of the things that my patients were going through and to be able to debrief with someone about that was really important so that I didn't just lose it all together <laughs> um, and become a patient myself. So yeah, it's very important that as physios we do realise that we we will come across things that are too deep for us to handle by ourselves, and we don't have to pretend we're so strong that we don't need help.
3: I think because we're probably coming to the end of our time pretty soon, I think one of the things to say is we've probably given a fair bit of information, and that. It can be really overwhelming to try and work out how to improve our practices in these areas. And I think the suggestion is to really start with something simple and small. You may take on one patient a year who um, you do pro bono. Or you may do one training course about allyship or go onto the APA website and undertake the cultural safety training perhaps take one thing and start with that
1: what's one thing uh, from each of you one thing that someone can do that is quite small that you recommend because maybe maybe taking one patient on at the moment is a little bit larger what's something or a resource uh, that someone can do today that I guess can set them on that track from each of you I mean that's a really interesting idea because
2: there's so many resources people already have so much knowledge about what's happening in the world that I think sometimes less is more. And so I would think maybe making a connection with an asylum seeker resource centre or one of the centres looking at refugees and, and perhaps survivors of torture and trauma if you're interested in that area, and just seeking out, is there a professional physiotherapist, for example, if you're a physio listening, who works in that area, who's willing to just have a chat and just make a time to you know share over a cup of coffee that that you're interested but you don't know where to start and
1: they'll be able to point you in the right direction so how would you go about doing that do you google it or do you just run around looking for someone you can google it you can uh, actually contact
2: uh, people who are in the profession that you know have an interest in this area I'm more than happy if people want to contact me to, you know, suggest uh, there might be people in other states or other areas that they could contact.
1: And what's your contact details? <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, I'm at the University of Melbourne and uh, um, people can uh, uh, look up my email address there. But I think just start a conversation with someone so you've got that connection and, um, you know, dipping the toe in the water can, can be just firstly just uh, seeing what the color of the water looks like you know
1: Hmm, i like that
3: okay my one suggestion is two suggestions so that people Heart can choose cheating. something that suits them <laughs> best <laughs> if you're more academically orientated i think read the paper by um megan ross and myself that was published this year in the it's journal of paper. physiotherapy thank you which is just um a simple study about people identifying as LGBTIQ+, plus and their experiences within physiotherapy. So I think that's, it's quite applied, and it's quite easy to take some clinical action or research action as a result of that paper. So that's um, an academic paper. And the other thing is there's a resource, which is a video, a very short video, that was made at the University of Melbourne by some students there who um, were in contact with Older Lesbian Network, And this is specific for physios, just a really lovely short video which you can find on YouTube. It's called LGBTI, and then separate word, no, K-N-O-W, LGBTI, no. So one of those, whichever way you're more oriented.
1: And Jenny, for the listeners, I'm just going to point out that before I even knew you, I'd read this paper. So it was actually kind of cool to read, oh, cool. Some, read it and then meet you. Um, but it is available on the Journal of Physios app as well. And that's where I first identified it, I think.
3: And it's open source for those yes, who don't exactly. know. So it doesn't cost anything. I know so That's very helpful. And of course, we need to throw the My question one. to you. Yeah. <laughs>
1: so, um, you know, some people might not have wall space for a for an artwork at the moment. But something very, very simple that you can do today is actually join our Facebook group for the ATSIC committee, so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Committee. Um, we have a Facebook group, like an interest group, but it, you're more than welcome to join it. And to write it into Facebook, it's Australian Physiotherapy Association written out, then the acronym I H C, so ATSIC group. And you can find it in, um, if you actually go across facebook into groups rather than just into the generic search bar it is a closed group so you will have to apply to invite but we'll accept you and then if that doesn't work at least check it in the next week when we may update some settings to make it a bit more accessible but i think that's a really good way that we share as a a committee with the general physios research opportunities conferences um videos all sorts of things and ways that you can get involved so i think that's a really nice way that you can pick and choose and see relevant information for your practice and you can say okay i'd like to adopt that if i'm not ready to do something else so very simple very easy
2: do it and i'd just like to add i mean I think they're great ideas with with websites and connections mm-hmm. so i'll just add three websites one is foundationhouse.org.au And that's the centre that I do some work from. There's also um, refugeehealthnetwork.org.au, which has got an extraordinary amount of resources in this area. And then the final one is refugeecouncil.org.au. And so if you're looking to do some research and and think about those areas, they're great websites to, to get information on.
3: So Cameron and David, it's been so lovely working with you during this conference and um, thank you very much for joining me and um, creating this podcast today.
2: It's been a wonderful experience and I've I've loved working with Cameron and yourself and uh, I think uh, it's been uh, an honour, so thank you.
1: I echo that. I feel very inadequate when they mention professionals in the fields and you guys have been working in your areas for longer than I've been alive, but um, I really do appreciate and value having met you guys and um, it's definitely opened my eyes to the populations that you guys have been speaking about thank you so much
0: that was Cameron Edwards David Kelly and Jenny Setchel you've been listening to another episode of Talking Physio a final thank you to FlexEase Australia's number one heat wrap for helping us produce the podcast We hope it's been both informative and interesting, and we look forward to bringing you another episode very soon. Thanks for listening.